Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Hello, Beats by Social Work listeners. We are so thankful that you were able to join us for a special interview. We wanted to recognize these two very distinguished social workers that we have with us today for uh, Social Work Month and International Social Work Day as a whole. So this is a very special episode. With us today in the studio is Jose Ramirez Jr. and his wife, Magdalena Ramirez. They are both social workers, and I'll briefly give an introduction to them. Now, of course, I I am very biased. I uh, am so grateful to be able to work with Jose directly as my colleague and begged him to give us the opportunity to interview him and his wife. So Jose started at Laredo Junior College and then graduated from Louisiana State University and was voted president of the sociology club. He graduated from Louisiana State University with his MSW. He's held positions, a very vast array of positions in his professional life from a tour guide, a planner, trainer, motivational speaker, and faculty at universities throughout Louisiana and Texas, as well as a social worker and an administrator. He is a licensed clinical social worker, a consultant on stigma to the World Health Organization and Nippon Foundation in Japan, consultant on skin conditions to the Cochrane Skin Group Review, and faculty at the University of Texas in the Houston Lone Star Lind program. He has held many leadership roles, including the Board of American Leprosy Mission, IDEA, which is the International Organization for Persons Affected by Leprosy, Spalding for Children, Sheltering Arms, NASW, as I'm sure most of us listening are familiar with, as well as many others that I wish I could name all of them, but we will certainly have them listed in our show notes as well. And on top of all his leadership roles, he has also been a very strong advocate. He's published over 50 articles, made over 100 presentations in 18 different countries. He has authored a book titled Squint, My Journey with Leprosy and has been featured in media throughout the world, including the Laredo Times, the Houston Chronicle, the New York Times, as well as many others across the world. He's also had many awards. The Fighting Spirit Award presented at the United Nations in New York City and presented at the University of Istanbul Medical School. I just, uh, I wish that I could share the entire bio, but please take a moment to go to our show notes and read it. And Magdalena has also had a medical social work career. Her entire social work career has been in medical social work. She graduated from UT Arlington. She was 2001 Texas Social Worker of the Year and 2002 keynote speaker about what it is like to have to be affected by Hansen's disease at an international conference. She has worked for the VA for over 38 years and is, I'm sure, very much enjoying retirement as we speak. 
<laughs> so before we start with our interview, I know that we got this bio from you, but is there anything else that the two of you would like to add? We just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. That is not in the bio, but uh, you know, that's what happens when you get to be 100. You, you go through so many milestones, but we had a, a great time celebrating. And then we have a, a belated present to each other. We're going on, on a short cruise along the Mexican coast uh, in March. Awesome. I think the only thing I would add would be that Jose has retired three times already, four times, and has returned to work every time. He seems to thrive in terms of helping people and being involved with very good uh, co-workers to, to deliver the services that, that they do deliver. I really admire the team uh, that he works with and, and I understand you know where he's coming from. And Magdalena retired because our daughter-in-law was pregnant and she said, ah, I'm going to be a grandma. Now we're grandparents to, to uh, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So we're both both enjoying that retirement, but I still continue working. <laughs> the old homage, you can take the man out of social work, but you can't take the social work out of the man. Right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. That's very good to me. <laughs> Well, I am truly honored. I have heard nothing but great things about uh, both of you from Kristen. Uh, she has certainly bragged on you. So I feel like I am in the presence of greatness here. So thank you again so much for being on this podcast. And I'm sure that our, our listeners are, are in for a special treat uh, with this interview. So again, thank you guys so much. With that said, you have a very unique story. And before we dive into our questions, can you briefly share what exactly the Carville Infirmary is, um, a timeline of your diagnosis, and just the events kind of leading into your story. Well, I, I was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, more commonly known as leprosy, and I prefer using Hansen's disease because leprosy creates so many negative images that go back to biblical times. But I was uh, sick for, for many years, and it got to the point where I was not able to take Magdalena to dances or, or work with her school projects at Loretta Junior College. I just was so sick. Um, but I, I went to multiple doctors and uh, finally I was admitted to the local hospital where three doctors got together and they decided to do all kind of exams. My diagnosis came when they did a biopsy and sent it to Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. And in less than 24 hours, the diagnosis came back. So very quickly I was uh, told that I could not stay in Texas because in Texas at the time, you had to be under treatment. So very quickly, my parents made plans. The, uh, the Mercy Hospital administrators paid for an ambulance, which was actually a, um, a hearse. And they invited Magdalena to go on the journey, which at the time was uh, a trip that started at four in the morning and lasted until 1130 at night because the roads were very different back then. And Carville is basically a national leprosarium, or was, from 1894 until 1999, when the land was turned back to the uh, state of Louisiana. And now it's a National Guard armory where it's high security because it's so isolated, one road in, one road out, and alligators on the on the backside and the Mississippi River meandering around. So it's very high security for CIA, FBI, and, and other intelligence organizations to train there. But my, my journey was on the back of a hearse after I was given the last rites, again because of all the images, and my parents 
parents were devastated. Uh, Magdalena, well, she can tell you how she felt, but uh, Magdalena and one of my older sisters went. Uh, she was an LDN and she would give me morphine injections every now and then because the pain was so severe. So that, that journey took me to this place uh, that all I could see was the, 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 the ceiling and a lot of cobwebs. And they gave me some steroids immediately after getting there. I could barely move. And uh, the next day, the next morning, my parents were, and Magdalena and my sister went to Baton Rouge to go to a, a motel. And they came in and they were just dumbfounded. My, my mother thought it was a, a miracle because I was actually sitting on the side of the bed and trying to eat. And they had made a, a, a special fork that was on my hand so I could lift the, the egg and, and, you know, the rest of the breakfast things. But that's basically a very short story in terms as to what transpired on my diagnosis. But there was a long journey before that uh, with people, uh, doctors dumbfounded and not knowing what it was. And then another journey after that with uh, medications and the support of uh, my family and, and Magdalena, who um, uh, never gave up. You know, she, uh, she, I like to joke, it's not true, but I like to joke that she really didn't have the money to buy glasses. And not until we got married that she finally were able to, was able to buy glasses. She put them on and she said, what? I waited for you. <laughs> the thing is that there's a lot of sad moments, but, but we have learned to, to laugh, you know, because we cannot be constantly in a, level of despondency. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And you're right. We have to learn to laugh even in the face of great pain to, to in order to cope with it sometimes. Magdalena, how did you and Jose meet? And can you share some of your experiences or recollections of that trip where Jose was taken to Carville? Jose and I uh, lived in the same neighborhood. He lived in what he calls the, what, the housing project, housing project <laughs> the condominiums, and I was a couple of blocks down the street. She lived in suburbia. He he was known because he was one of thirteen family, you know, in the in his family, and I knew his brothers and his sisters. We all knew each other because in those times, you know, we all would uh, not lock our doors and be outdoors, and we knew each other's families and what they did. But we really were not together until junior high, where I invited him to go to a quince. Uh, with me and I really didn't know him. I just thought he looked very clean cut and my parents were very strict so they didn't allow me to date very much and I thought okay well this is a safe way because you're with your friends and colleagues and everybody knows each other but when Jose and I started getting serious in, in high school he and I kind of forged some sort of agreement that we wanted to study. We wanted to go to school and we wanted to get a degree to to have a better life. We come from families that were not rich, you know. We don't consider ourselves poor because they provided rather well, but uh, we wanted more for ourselves. So when Jose started getting sick on our first and second year of junior college, it was very frustrating because there was no clear diagnosis of what was going on with him. He had sores in his body. He had high fevers. He could hardly walk. He became a very young, strong man to a very weak, almost crippling, you know, old person. And we couldn't find out the why. So in our culture, he can go to a curandero, he can go to different doctors, and nobody really had a 
an answer. He would go to Mexico, he would go to San Antonio, he would go to other places. And it wasn't until they all got together and said, this is rather baffling and we need to find out that we, we found out that, uh, that he had a disease that we had never heard of before. Yeah, we thought we had never heard of it. But at that time, things were so severe that when I joined him on the trip, it was because I thought he was going to die. It, it was so drastic that there was no other conclusion and I think we all went with that intent that that was the last time we were going to see him. And it's true. I think we were all very amazed when the following day he was sitting up and we're going like, what did they give you? Because this is not you. This is something's going on. So we knew that he was in the right place where he needed to get the treatment. Now, our relationship continued through the years of him studying, I studying, and we corresponded. We didn't have any internet. We didn't have any money for phone calls. So we did a lot of handwriting. And I think that's what Jose used as the basis for his book, the recollection of those times that we wrote to each other, talking about the highs and the lows and uh, putting it to, to paper to try to help others, to try to help others. The, the real connection between Magdalena and I was when I did not ask for permission to kiss her like someone else he had dated. I just, you know, I just kissed her. <laughs> That's right. He was very brave. <laughs> yeah, because I, in a sense, I, I feel like I had my priorities and it, I wasn't going to be deterred. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, had family members that were in the medical field. So I knew I wanted to study and we were on the same you know, playing. We, we understood that we were going to do it. We, we didn't realize uh, until we both graduated that we were the first ones to get a college degree. Later on, you know, we had uh, younger siblings who, who did go to college, but we were the first ones in our families. And it was, uh, I mean, a huge achievement. One, because of the fact that, that we really, you know, our parents didn't have money to pay for that. So Magdalena was able to get loans. Once I got sick, I was considered quote unquote disabled. So I qualified for rehabilitation services and uh, I ended up with with a lot of scars but the the, the biggest scars that I have are the ones that are in my soul and uh, occasionally you know, we still cry together but we didn't we, we don't cry you know for sadness anymore we cry because of how happy we have um, you know the journey that has brought us a lot of happiness. Wow. That's, I mean, I just need to sit in all of that for a moment. I mean, starting with the symbolism of you taking that journey, taking that ride in a hearse, you said, and your family all thinking that that was the last time that they were going to see you. And then the next day you just sitting on the other side of your bed and okay, now what? And you, you both mentioned during that time, your highs and lows. Can you, can you share some of those, the, the highs and the lows, the recollections, the key, key moments during that time that really got you to the place where you are, are now? Well, I, I can reflect back on, on the beginning when, you know, my parents came into my hospital room individually the night before, and they both asked for forgiveness because uh, they were saying that God was punishing them for their sins through me. A lot of biblical things, a lot of symbolism, a lot of stigma, and I had no idea how to respond. I mean, I just cried and cried and cried, and my, my parents gave me a, a medal, really, you know, that I still wear, you know, so 50 
50 years old and it looks as if uh, you know it was just given to me yesterday and then the uh, the, the next thing is that my uh, my older sister stayed with me that night because I, I was so afraid I was just told that you know handed a little book that said handbook for patients with leprosy and I had no idea where I was going so the high point to the trip was the fact that Magdalena was with me and we we didn't talk much we primarily held hands you know and uh, on that journey from four in the morning I, I don't know if Magdalena even slept that night you know she had to get some clothes together and then talk to her parents about that journey it's a big thing you know for uh, her mom to to say okay but uh, that was wonderful you know that was a very high point for me because I had that support and of course I knew that my sister and my parents were riding in the car, an old car be behind us. And um, those were the initial low and high points for me. I think uh, coming from Laredo, we have been very sheltered in a sense, you know, small community. Everybody knows each other. We don't really had a chance. We didn't have a chance to travel out of the city very much. So going to Louisiana to us was like going to the other side of the country. We didn't know where it was. We had never been out. So it was scary to think that we were going to a place we didn't know and what to expect. And in the dead of night, when you come to Carville, it has huge oak trees with a lot of moss. And it looks very scary at night. It looks very scary. This is a very old institution. And and you could see, you know, you almost felt like it was like a prison or, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. So I think the first impressions were, were pretty stark and scary. And, and the fact that we were going to leave him there, you know, where he knew nobody. And then that we were going to drive all the way back home at, with the question, what's going to become of him. And I think it was difficult to be apart for that period of time. He, he was in the hospital for seven years and we corresponded during, you know, that time. And it, I think the separation was difficult, but, you know, I, I was in school. So, you know, my mind was occupied. So our relief was to save enough for phone calls so we could talk to each other to keep a pulse in terms of how each of us were doing because he was being given a lot of medication that was having a lot of side effects. So you could see the highs and you could see the lows. But I think all in all, we knew that he was in the right place to get the treatment that he needed. I knew that I, I was in the right place when I, I saw the face of uh, Magdalena and my mother how surprised they were. And of course, we all yeah. cried. I remember we all cried and hugged. And uh, I, my dad left me a $20 bill. I guess that's all he could afford. And then my mom packed a small bag with a pair of socks, a pair of underwear, a pair of jeans, and a pair of t-shirts. Because she told me many years later, like Magdalena said, you know, that they didn't know what was going to happen and it, they, they thought I was going to die. So that little bag I donated to the museum there at, um, at Carville. But uh, I, I was told within a few days, you know, the patients, there were over 400 patients from all over the world. They saw Magdalena and, and my parents and my sister. And Magdalena is a beautiful woman. And when they saw her and then they saw me and they said, you poor girl, you need to go ahead and let her go. You're going to be here for the rest of your life. And oh. then I was told that 
that uh, I would not have permission to leave unless it was written permission from the doctors. And then when I started looking at the place, you know, the high cyclone fence and guards at the entrance, there's only one entrance. I mean, it was very scary. And, and that also made me angry, you know. Why Why am I being separated from my family? Why am I separated from my girlfriend? Why is it that uh, I have to be isolated like this? I didn't need to bring anything because they gave me shoes, underwear, pants, uh, everything, uh, food, everything that I needed. And uh, the long journey with medications, you know, went ahead and transformed me that uh, I was able to overcome those um, scars and, and pain. But the thing is that I, I decided to go ahead and, and become part of the community, which was both good and bad. You know, when you have that feeling of institutionalization, when you have everything provided to you. But I, I became a member. I went ahead and, and ran for the Patients Federation. We were voted by the other patients. I belonged to the Mexican club. I belonged to the Lions club. I belonged to uh, the Chinese club and the Japanese club, even though I would go and I wouldn't understand anything, but I enjoyed being with uh, them. And then Magdalena came to, to visit and oh my God, the stairs, you know, that was unheard of because people basically were were abandoned and uh, divorced and uh, declared dead in their minds. So it was, uh, it was unusual, especially when they would see Magdalena coming with my parents and my parents bringing a lot of cultural foods or, or snacks to give to the other patients. They were always very generous. One of the best things that happened when Jose was diagnosed and institutionalized was uh, that his father decided to put a, an article in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, to tell everybody that knew him that he was at the USPHS hospital in Carville, Louisiana. If anybody wanted to correspond with him, that they gave the address. So everything was out. It was not like we were hiding anything. And uh, yes, my, my mother and my dad were very skeptical about and scared that maybe I would uh, come down with Hansen's disease. Oh. So they were concerned but not to the point of discouraging me from seeing him or writing to him because they knew early on that we had had a relationship early, uh, that we had known each other and felt comfortable with each other and in a sense had kind of agreed that, that we wanted to be together. The, the disease is, is not hereditary. It's not transmitted sexually. Uh, it is very difficult uh, for the bacilli to incubate because it, sometimes it could take up to 20 years. Mm -hmm. But the only, and doing all this research, the only mammal or animal that has been considered a carrier is the nine-banded armadillo, which is uh, it lives only be below the Mason-Dixon line to northern Mexico, the nine-banded armadillo. And uh, the epidemiological study that was done many years later, they suspected, even though they don't know, that when I was going to to, to the fields to, with my grandfather, where he would pick cantaloupes and watermelons and tomato and onion and cotton and so forth, the guys would uh, capture the armadillo cut him up and came for a snack. You know, they built a fire. So that's what they suspect, even though it hasn't been confirmed. And now more recent research has shown that the red squirrel found in Europe was also a carrier and that's the risk world that might have you know created all that mess in terms of so many people in, in the European countries with Hansen's disease back in the 17 1800s and now they're doing more research
research with the bacilli that they actually can can insert it into a deceased liver and the, the, the liver will regenerate. So they're thinking that the bacilli, which is very small growing, can actually regenerate organs. So that's a, a huge thing. But once they find out for sure how it is transmitted, it's going to become worldwide news. And uh, the, the medication that I took is now used for so many things, for, for mm-hmm. cancer, for seizures, for people who gone through transplants, through so many things that is fascinating that, you know, I was part of that medication, even though the, the side effects were horrendous and they had to figure out the right dosage mm-hmm. before I finally was able to get to the point of saying, okay, I'm ready to get out of Dodge. Wow, there there is an awful lot to unpack in that, but uh, thank you so so much for sharing so much. Magdalena, as you were reflecting on the the scenery and Jose, you as well, of, of Carville and what it looked like, I just imagined the quintessential spooky movies from like mm-hmm. a black and white scary movie with the, with the tree and the moonlight coming through the trees and this big wrought iron gate that opens up and it just sounds like something that you would watch uh, during Halloween time just very scary. Well, as you entered into the premises or the hospital, there was a mansion right on the side. Oh, gosh. We had never seen a mansion before, but there was an oak tree right next to it with, you know, it was just very spooky and and not, not having visited Louisiana, not knowing about, you know, the oaks and the moss. It was something different, you know. We're from Laredo. It's hot, hot, and hotter. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, you know, moss or oak trees. Or we do, but not to the extent of as large and as big and as beautiful as they really are. Now, it did make a difference during the daytime that you could see mm-hmm. the beauty of the place. Because of the river, the Mississippi, because of the green of the grass because the the mansion was beautiful really mm-hmm. but um, it still looked like an institution you know it still housed people yeah. that that were disabled yeah we we had an opportunity to sleep in the mansion when uh, I was invited to go back for a book signing and and by then you know the the facility was already under the control of the national guard Mm. And we met the colonel and he said, look, you know, why don't you stay in the mansion? And what? <laughs> and he didn't even charge us. But we went there and of course it's all plumbing and everything with huge, you know, bed, uh, high bed. But, you know, I never imagined that I would be there yeah. because there were so many rules, unwritten rules. You cannot cross this imaginary line. You cannot go and visit, you know, staff because they lived on the other side of the facility. You cannot leave without permission. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. So I I was a little bit on the rebellious side because I was already angry. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, I was assigned surrogate parents to look after me and they would give me advice whenever I would get into trouble violating rules. And then also I had a, a social worker, mm-hmm. uh, Vernon Ballinger, who every time I did something wrong, I was reported to him and I had to go see him. I, I never knew that I was going there for counseling. Mm-hmm. It was just and he inspired me so much. I wanted to be just like. So I want to ask you, uh, can the two of you share experiences that you observed or firsthand experiences of stigma 
as a result of chronic illness or being stigmatized because of a chronic illness. And I also want to throw in there as well, uh, because you mentioned it too, about being exposed to different cultures at Carville and being involved in multiple cultures while you were there. Can you share some more of those experiences too? Well, the the cultural impact was uh, quite big, you know, because I, I had never been involved with so many individuals speaking so many different languages. So I learned how to say hello in different languages. You know, I would not be able to communicate and they would communicate back with me in Spanish. I, when I was on the Patients Federation, I was responsible for ordering movies that we had Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So the different cultures would come to me and they say, can you order some Spanish speaking movies? Can you order some Indian movies? Can you order some other languages that would come in? And of course, people would still go to the movies. Uh, it didn't have any of the little subtitles that you find now so common. But I, I was intrigued by by all of that. There were several people there that were from Vietnam that had been in, in the service. And once they were diagnosed, they were quickly removed from the service and sent to, to Carville. So that was a big piece of stigma. Uh, we also knew that uh, the people in the community knew where one lived. Like for me, I was denied services, you know, when my license, driver's license had, you know, the address and they would not uh, embrace me. There were also individuals there that were were so embedded in terms of seeing people differently, you know, because we we spoke differently. We had certain languages. And even within the hospital, there was some stigma. Uh, the, 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 the hospital was a huge research center. And they said, don't be afraid of the disease. But yet, you know, we go to, to mass and we had, you know, sitting for, for staff and sitting for patients. And then two different chalices. So that got me very angry. They had two dining halls. You you couldn't cross that at all. And of course, they had a jail inside the facility that if you broke a rule or you broke the law, the, the, the community, the parish would not allow you to be placed in jail there. So they would put you in the jail there. And I was threatened with that a number of times. But the, the stigma that I saw, the biggest one was uh, in terms of getting communion on two different chalices. Until one day I, I decided to go sit on, on the staff side and oh my God, everybody was so angry, including the nuns. And I went to, to kneel by the altar back then that's how you would get the hose. And then the, the assistant put the drop plate and then the priest very slowly, you know, gave me the hose. And from then on, they only used one chalice. But uh, the, the silent treatment that I received from the staff and the patients lasted for a long time. And that was, that was expected. That was a practice. You separate, you, you, you know, you stigmatize people. I think what I saw was that um, I understood after a period of time why the persons that were there, they were called patients all the time, were skeptical that Jose and I would remain together because their own families had abandoned them and their friends had abandoned them and they they had already been ostracized. And what I saw, yes, was a lot of, you know, all kind of ages, but with disabilities, either in wheelchairs or they had deformities of the hand or of the face. And I I think as I stayed there longer, they got to see that it was not a one-time thing, that we were going to be uh, seeing each other 
uh, and, and the trust issue came in where they trusted that I would return, that his family would return, that his friends from high school would write to him. It was like a different standard. But as I got to know some of these persons with, with Hansen's disease, they became our friends. And I didn't realize how protective I became of uh, how they were seen, how they were treated, because the staff at the facility were good people. The nuns, they were excellent, and, and the administrators, they were the top in their field, and they treated people with dignity and respect. I'm sure there must have been some in Jose's recollection that did not you know, do that, but I saw a lot of good people rendering good treatment. It wasn't until you left the premises, you were going outside the facility, that we would gather at uh, friends' homes, people that knew they had Hansen's disease. But when we ventured outside of that community, either to restaurants or facilities that maybe were, were not as sensitive to the disabled, you could see stairs, you could see questioning, you know, and, and I found myself, and Jose did too, trying to defend or kind of get upset about people being so obviously annoying, you know, and not understanding of, of what the disability might be. Now, it was to us, maybe because we were in the same circles with people with Henson's disease all around the world, that when we visited, was it Spain, that Jose and a lot of the other uh, persons affected by Hansen's disease, we went to church and we were going to light candles and do our cultural rituals and they stayed outside. And when we came outside, Jose said, one of the parishioners gave us an alm, they gave mm -hmm. us a, you know, a, a gift. And I said, why did they do that? Because they thought we were patients sitting outside asking for contributions. For, for donations. For donations. Yeah. And we were just floored. We kept saying, in person's minds, the image of disability is such that they judge right away. You know, these are either homeless people or disabled people that need help. And I found myself getting upset about that, that uh, sometimes people don't take time to ask mm -hmm. or understand you know why you might be there and uh, it, it happened in several of the countries you know that we went to and that's because we were insular you know we knew where he was we knew what the treatment was we knew there were good people there but the outside world did not know our, our experiences at Cargill made us the advocates that we yeah. both became and our children uh, mm -hmm. Our children are strong advocates. They've written letters to the editors. Erika serves on the editorial board of the Star. So it's been a, a, a wonderful journey, and I continue to go ahead and, and write about things. We're, we're emptying the attic right now because we want to go ahead and, and do some things upstairs. And my God, we've come across so many memories, you know, wow. papers presentations, uh, pamphlets, uh, things that we have done. And, and you know, we, we, we stopped doing what we're doing because we, we you know, we have these memories that are, are not never going to go away. I want to jump in real quick and bring up a story that you've shared with me and you've written in the star about as well, that you were on a particular medication that had a side effect that changed the color of your skin. And I wanted to see if you would be willing to share that story briefly with our listeners and what that was like for you. The, the medication uh, was called B663. It was an experimental medication. 
Now it's called clopestamine, which can actually be used to uh, treat the uh, lung disease. But the, the fact is that that medication was very experimental when I started at the hospital. And it would turn your complexion dark. And being in Louisiana during the 60s, and then being allowed to attend LSU in a sea of white faces, it's like wearing somebody else's shoes. So one, I already had the, the label of... Uh, living at Carville with Hansen's disease. And then second, I was referred to by the N-word. And Magdalena was with me uh, during those times when they would, uh, there were groups that would follow us and they would call her names as to why she was dating this uh, N-guy. It was scary. And then when I was at LSU, one of my classmates was the Grand Dragon of the KKK. And his entourage would uh, would follow me. The, the police would call me boy. The the female students would would also look down on me. It was it was very scary. So I would go to school, I would go to class, and then head back quickly. So I didn't really socialize, but I I learned about the stigma that goes also with the color of your skin, not just, you know, what is on your skin and, and the nurse being affected. It was quite a, a journey for us. And there were many times when I was so angry, I wanted to turn around and just curse at them or get into a fight. But when you have 10 people following you, there's no win in, in that fight, at least physically. So I learned to be able to debate the disease. There was a, uh, I don't know if they still do, but there's a section uh, right outside the student union at LSU called the soapbox because literally they have a little box. You get on it and you speak. You're allowed to go ahead and speak for five minutes, do whatever you want to say. And uh, the person, the Grand Dragon of KKK would see me and he would address me in a very negative way. And uh, I had to, to get up there and I first started just getting very angry and you know cursing you know without making any kind of impact so I had to to calm myself down to learn more about the Bible and Leviticus and what it means and so forth and started educating people and that's why I ran for the sociology club so there, there were things that it would impact us a little bit at a time. It's kind of like uh, when uh, our uh, daughter was going to elementary school and uh, Magdalena would see that some of the Spanish-speaking students there were being treated differently. She decided to, to run for president of PTO and made some changes. So there are little things like that that start with the institutionalization that affect our lives constantly. When we were married in 1970, 72, um, Jose has, had been taking that medication, and he was definitely a lot uh, darker. The, the picture we have shows that. Um, but for us, it was a good opportunity to have people ask, why have you changed in your color? What's going on? And for us, it was an opening to educate, to say, this is what happens when you take this medication and it's a treatment for this disease. Um, we happen to be very lucky that we have strong families and very good friends that knew him uh, before he was diagnosed and kept that friendship. So it meant a lot to us. We were living in Louisiana at the time and my uh, mother and Jose's mother made all the arrangements for the wedding back in Laredo. So I think just having gone through the experience, it allowed us an opportunity to educate our family and our friends regarding Hansen's disease.
I love that. I'm going to say I love the fact that you you took your your frustration, your anger, and you you turned that into how can it make a change? Realizing that that fighting back physically or just fighting mm-hmm. back with emotion without having any backing wasn't going to do anything to to make that change. And I think so much of that is incredible skill set that is not something everybody has or is able to to obtain. And just hearing that that's how you did that. I love the the aspect of the soapbox. You know, Kristen and I always joke that we get on our soapboxes um, here, but you had a physical soapbox that you could get onto and spread the the knowledge and education. And it's you were the pebble, even if it was just one person that impacted. But then that one person went and shared it. How many more people did you impact that you don't even know about to this day potentially that took the words that you were saying and spread them? Such a strong skill set. Well, well, you know, Tiffany, there's, there's always times when, when we are pleasant and we want to help and we literally touch someone. I mean, uh, at work, I see Kristen. I mean, she's a marvelous social worker and friend, and, and I see what she does. You know, daily, you know, she, she touches other people uh, in many different ways, and we were touched ourselves like the social worker who touched me and Magdalena also who was inspired in going to social work. We never said, we're going to be social workers. Mm-hmm. We never said that it just happened. And mm-hmm. and my dream was to become a social worker at the hospital, which I'm glad didn't happen because I wouldn't have been very uh, objective. You know, uh, I, I, I knew too much and, and I didn't want to go ahead and, and uh, jeopardize, you know, people's privacy and stuff like that. But the fact is that we all have a chance to, to touch someone. What you and, and Kristen are doing yes, exactly. uh, with the podcast, you know, you're, you're touching people. And I'm glad that you're giving us the opportunity to do a little bit of that as well. Yeah, well, we're glad that you're here. Now, you also mentioned the social worker at the hospital. And I found it I kind of laughed to myself when you said you got sent to the social worker whenever you were in trouble. And I laugh because so many of our patients in the work that we do now view that same way. They do something, they they have some non-compliance, they did something, and oh, they get sent to the social worker. But you also mentioned that you didn't realize at the time that you were getting counseling. When did you realize that that social worker that you were getting sent to was helping you and was processing with you? Before I went to to graduate school, I was required to go to the um, student council, not the student council, the student clinic, and participate in counseling. I had to go to at least two sessions. And I realized what the the social worker was doing was pretty much being reflected in what Vernon Ballinger was doing with me. He was listening pretty much. And I said, oh, maybe he was doing something other than just talking. But uh, just last week, we went to a a book club and they decided to to read our book. And one of the ladies said, I know the son of Vernon Ballinger, the social worker. You know, I, I don't know how they know each other, but remember, I mean, the connection it brought back so many tears for us. But uh, it, it finally dawned on me as well when I uh, went to, to do my research and I went to see my medical records. I mean, the medical records were yeah, very thick. I went through every day that I was there from day one to the time that I was discharged. And um, there I found that the social worker, because I had shared with him that I was interested in continuing my education, he went to the hospital administrator and and 
persuaded him to together go to LSU and meet with the chancellor because LSU had a policy that no one with a disease could work there or attend as a student. So they had to change that policy. And then they went and communicated with Texas Rehabilitation Commission to for them to pay out of state fees for me to attend the university. So I did not know that until many, many years later when I went to look at my medical records. Can you believe that? Wow. And and I, I I I wish I would have spent more time with him. I loved the man dearly. He was oh he was fantastic. Uh, many of the other social I mean the the patients hated him because he was always advocating for independence. You know don't rely on 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 uh, being dependent on the on, on the system. Try to be independent. And he advocated that for me and I it must have made an impact because I I was shooting for independence. I wanted to leave, but but I tell Magdalena, you know, when, when I die and, and you cremate me, make sure that my right arm uh, is taken to Carville and sprinkled around in the cemetery because that's my home. One of my homes. In fact I wrote an article called Mi Casa. Wow. Now now why your right arm though? <laughs> That's a good yeah. question. <laughs> uh, because my, my right arm, I'm right-handed, and that's what gives me strength. Okay. And, and, and I want, I, I really became a, uh, the person I am by being there. And, I love uh, it. She couldn't be my head, but she said, I said, in the cemetery there, it's beautiful and, and during yeah, the day. Is, it, is nice. it looks like a mini Arlington National Cemetery, but you go there at oh. night. And it's scary as hell. Jose's going to be cremated. How am I going to know which the leg is and the arm is? <laughs> so uh, I want to ask, because you, you've spoken about the experience that a social worker has had in your life or social work as a field has had on your life. And so how, and this is a question for both of you, how you ultimately feel that these experiences that you went through in life helped you as a social worker. What have you drawn from in your career in social work? And also not only your experience through Carville and through chronic disease, but also as a minority, as someone who is bilingual, how have those experiences changed your practice as social workers? Well, for me, I, I, I've become a much better listener. You've seen me when we have huddles, Christine. You know, I, I just observe and listen. And sometimes you may ask, what are you thinking, Jose? But I, it's not necessarily what I'm thinking, but it's, it's the interaction that uh, others are having, especially with patients. When we go and do a dry run or do a complete psychosocial, I want to listen. I, I go ahead and look at them. And that's what, the biggest thing that I've learned about being a social worker. Uh, because I, we did that also as we traveled throughout the world and we went to all these leprosoriums. We just would get very close and listen. We, we, we like the, the physical interaction. We're both huggers and we want to be able to, to make a connection, not physically giving them a hug, but visually giving the person that we're talking to a, a hug. So that's what I've, I've told my, my students. I've had many students throughout my career and I've told them you need to become multilingual. You need to, first of all, learn if it's a different language to at least say hello to them and then listen. Those two are, are the biggest things for me. You know, coming from Laredo, Texas, our first language was Spanish and we had to learn English. And because 99% at that time were Hispanic, um, we really didn't, you know, 
work with any other people that were of other cultures. So coming out to Louisiana, we felt very much few Hispanics at that time, but um, we definitely saw a lot of the practices and discrimination against Black. I worked at the Earl K. Long Hospital, and uh, I, I loved it there. But I think when you go through an episode of Jose's illness, the hospitalization, the exposure, you get to hear a lot of oral histories of people's lives. And it makes you realize how fortunate we were to have maybe been there at the time that Jose was hospitalized because uh, Jose, in a sense, was a change. He was doing things quite different than anybody else and he was setting the example to have others follow. Yet we knew that those persons there really didn't have a choice. They had lost everything and we did not judge, you know, that they were being given all the comforts of being home. Um, but we heard their stories. And I think after a while, you develop a empathetic, you know, stream of, of wanting to know more and wanting to know how they coped because they were survivors as well. They had survived all those years, you know, with what they were given. So for us, it was a matter of honing on on the listening skills, you know, kind of putting in perspective what happened to us and, and realizing that not everybody's experience is the same. Yet when people in our field tell you what's going on with them, you understand it. You understand it because you've lived it in a sense. You've done without, you have been scared, you trust that the system will give you the best possible treatment and yet there's side effects. And so you take all of that into account. And for people that don't speak the language, you know, uh, whether it be English or, or Spanish, we had the advantage and we never knew it was an advantage until we started using it in our practices that we could communicate, you know, in Spanish to help them understand what the doctors were saying, what the process was, what, you know, the explain the feelings that were going on with, with the treatments, that it made more sense to us that, you know, sometimes there's a plan that God puts in place that has you question, you know, why my goodness, speaking Spanish, what a value it is because everybody calls on you. Can you come and interpret? Can you say this? And I'm going like, yes, I will. But no, I'm not an interpreter and I'm not a translator. I'm a social worker. And, and that's the job that I want to do. But uh, I think it, for us, it has been an advantage and understanding of, of differences of different cultures because we have differences and, and we celebrate those differences with other cultures as well. So for us, cargo was the mega of the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, you know, the United States, Cajun. There were so many different cultures that it was so richness there that uh, they everybody had their own stories to tell. We had never eaten grits, nor gumbo, nor crawfish until we ended up in Louisiana. Yeah. But one of the things that uh, that I recall is whenever I would be on a one-to-one -one with some of the other residents, and we would start talking about our journeys, I found that the things that they recalled were the last kiss, uh, the last smell of the perfume, the smell of the pillow, uh, the last embrace. Those were the things that, that kept them going, you know, that last moment of the person that they were with. And the thing is that uh, that 
cultural exchange has uh, transformed our daughter and our son. Our daughter ran for class president when she was at uh, Bel Air High School. She ran the first time that, you know, she ran for, for office and now recently she ran for another office and now is a judge. But I remember when, when she, because she traveled with us mm -hmm. to some places uh, where we were and she learned how to be able to say hello in 10 different languages. So when she made her speech, it was a very brief speech at the graduation ceremonies. She went ahead and used, I think it was 12 different hellos. And, and she got a standing ovation from the students because Bel Air has a, a, a huge, a rich culture of, um, of different languages. And uh, she, I said, where the hell did she get that from? Well, from us, obviously, because, you know, we did that. So again, we touched someone that is our very own. So we continue to, to touch uh, as social workers and even when we're not wearing the social worker hat. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the use of touch and it's not always physical as you said it's it's the the touching someone's lives the giving them a hug without physically giving them a hug giving them that safe space i think what you guys both just said is the epitome of social work and using life experiences but also hearing people because so often that's the first time that someone's been hurt and has been able to share their story and given that safe space right as social workers to not judge them and you know as you guys were talking, I just, I mean, it was, it's, you guys are just protrude social work <laughs> and what you're saying. And so I, I think it's incredible what you were saying with the being able to say hello, even in different languages. You know, I unfortunately do not know how to speak Spanish. I went and I took Spanish classes and unfortunately I can only say very little <laughs> phrases. One of my nurse coordinators um, speaks Spanish and so I practice with her, but she told me a very important lesson. I thought if I use my very poor Spanish, that it would be considered that I was being negative. It was, it would not come across well. She said, no, she said, if you say hello or you try, it's showing that you're trying. And it, and it just changed my whole perspective because I always was afraid to say anything because I didn't want people to think I was making fun or anything of that nature. And so it's happened when I have someone that speaks any language. I ask them to teach me a phrase as I'm going through my psychosocial with them. How, how do I say hello and goodbye? How do I say, how are you? And then I would practice and to see that their faces light up. I, I recently was doing it in Arabic and learning how to say hello. And um, some of their just kind of normal phrases that they utilize. And every time I would say that, especially if a scary situation was being talked about in the room at the hospital bedside, I would stay behind a little bit and talk with them. And then I would throw that in and, and it just just changed their whole demeanor. And so it, it's validating hearing that from you and just reinforcing that to all social workers, how important that is. There's a, there's a new clinic manager at work and when she was, I guess she was being evaluated. Anyway, we started talking and she said that she's part Japanese. So from then on, when I would see her in the mornings, I would say Ohio, which is good morning in Japanese. And, and she, to this day, she looks at me and like, thank you. You know, I, I appreciate the, the good morning. Ohio, so, so, so natural. Yes, the simplest of things. So as a transplant social worker, how have your life experiences helped you in working with transplant patients now? You know, Hanson's disease will impact you emotionally, spiritually, physically, and 
And the same thing happens for people who are going through transplant or a bad. It affects them emotionally, physically, spiritually. And they, they question, you know, is my life coming to an end? So those experiences, personal experiences, and, and seeing that throughout the world, I'm able to then connect. I, I, it's kind of hard to, to describe, but I, I feel a connection to all the people that I work with. I don't like to refer to them as patients because I was referred to as a patient for many years. I didn't even have a name, you're a patient. So I like to, to refer to them by their uh, name, Mr. or Miss. Rarely do I call them by their first name. So that forms a connection for me in, in terms of the life experiences. I, I, I really love my job. You know, I, Magdalena said that I've uh, retired multiple times now. And, and this really is my best job. One, because I don't have to supervise anyone. I don't have to do any administrative things. I don't have to be on the seven o'clock uh, call. I don't have to work on the weekends. But I invest all of me during those eight hours that I'm there. I am vested in, in what I do and I, and I love it. And I, I, I think maybe I should have been a transplant social worker from the beginning. But then when I started in the last century, they, they didn't have transplant so. So maybe I'm here at the right time. Well, uh, just speaking for myself and and in a place of selfishness, I I can agree with you on that because I think that it's the right time for our team as well to have you on board. So <laughs> I I think it's perfect for us as well. What is a and this is a question for the both of you. What is a message that you want to convey to new social workers entering the field? working specifically with chronically ill or transplant patients or a, a chronically ill individuals? Well, it, it goes back to what I said earlier, at least for me, be a listener. You know, people forget that social workers are primarily listeners. And, and that's how we're able to go ahead and do that. The other thing is, don't be afraid to learn from the seasoned social workers. Uh, there's a big gap, as you will know, you know, earlier, my sister-in-law helped me set this up so we could uh, have this this conversation because I'm not technology savvy. However, I do have other skills, you know, the experiences that I have. So seasoned social workers can can provide an avenue for them to be able to grow. So that's what I would tell newbies. Be a good listener and, and definitely access seasoned social workers. You will uh, move ahead uh, closer. Don't plan on, on automatically going into private practice or to becoming a top administrator because you need to experience first. I think uh, the job of a transplant social worker is, is really tough. I, I have to admire the, the people that, that work in that arena because when Jose shares some of the stories that, that he does, it's difficult to fathom how day in and day out you can be of, of help to someone that is going through such crisis uh, critical decision making, emotions that you don't know how it's going to turn out. Sometimes you might be the only person that's really listening because the other professionals might be more occupied with the skill that they have at hand and wanting to deliver. And as a social worker, I found myself wanting to gain the, the trust of the patient to, to know that I was going to be available, to know that I was going to be the person to add 
advocate for them. I was going to be the person that if they had any questions, they, they could say it or encourage them to ask the questions of the doctors, the nurses, the other team members, not to maybe to put them at ease in terms of that scary feeling of the outcome. What's going to happen to me? And will I make it through through this? So I think listening is, is definitely the key, but emphasizing that the process is a difficult one and uh, you're there to help them from one point to the next and that you will always be available. I hear Jose many times mentioning how he goes back to see the patient just to say good morning sometimes or to get a gauge of how they're doing that particular day. And I, I think a sense of trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do to be of help to them and that uh, you demonstrated. I don't want to say hand-holding, but visibility, support, that sometimes you're the only member that will be speaking in their behalf or encouraging them to speak in their own behalf and that you're there from beginning to end. Magdalena really started a profile in, in medical social work. I didn't get into medical social work until halfway of my career. But because of that and the, the, the fact that I was dealing with other issues, with other specialties, allowed us to to talk shop, in other words, to learn from each other because it's very different. So, you know, people ask, how can two social workers mm -hmm. live together? Well, it's been different journeys and, and we've been able to go ahead and do that. Time to, to settle down, other times to get pumped up. And I, it's true. And always learning from each other and learning from those around you. I think that's such a, a part that needs to be highlighted is no one person has all the answers and we're never going to be the expert in our field. There's always going to be someone that we can learn from and that we should learn from and yeah. talking it out when you need to and being able to, as you said, talk shop. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do sometimes is just be able to, to get in those conversations where you're in the throes of just talking social work and it's okay and it's cool to do. <laughs> it's, it's some of the best conversations. And so aside from social work talk, what messages would you convey to someone that is listening that might be a patient that's just starting their journey with chronic illness or just starting to consider transplant as an option for their end-stage organ failure or LVAD as an option? The, it, it's a tough journey. And one of the things that I, I tell them is that they need to start thinking outside the box because, you know, they, they haven't really thought about who will care for them. They haven't thought about the medical power of attorney. They haven't thought about wills. And we all should be doing that at, as soon as we turn 18. So it's getting them back to when they were 18. That's what I try to do with all my patients when I first meet them with a, uh, and, and reflect back to when they were 18 and what is it that you do? Because as Kristen uh, has seen, uh, there's no way to resolve a conflict in personalities that go back 30 years. You know, we're not there to, to do that. We're, we cannot solve it. But that's what I try to do, to take them back to a point when they were 18 and what decisions would they be making then? Not just because they're ill and because they need an LVAD. I try to reflect back on where they were at that particular time. And it's not an easy journey, but uh, that's what I try to do. 
And Magdalena, what about you? Anything that you would like to add to that? I, I stopped to think about how scary it must be to, to go through a journey that says it's either life or death, or it's going to be not only impacting me, but my family as well. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot that's going on with the individual, aside from the physical and the medical, that uh, sometimes needs to be out. You know, they think about it, they worry about it, so that when we're there with them, you know, to be able to find out where they are at that time and what they're needing a relief from, because none of us have the answers as to how things will turn out, but we can help you along the journey of transitioning to taking care of business. You know, what is important right now? What will become important? I think Jose and I talk a lot about the caregivers that uh, sometimes have to give up a lot and, and mm-hmm. whether we would be able to to do that that's a journey that's a difficult one and and you can't really paint it as you know it's going to be perfectly fine because everybody's experience is very different and you cheer when it comes out great and and everything falls into place and and you feel good for them and yet you come back to those individuals that are having a very difficult time and you want to help them along the process and it's it's a tough I have a lot of admiration for not only Jose but you all that do the actual work because you know we were told early on you don't cry with patients you know you don't let them know that that it's painful that it hurts so it's a journey it's a journey I've been a patient before (laughs) and I know exactly you know what I needed to do but not having someone on the other end to help you through that pain and that process that is so slow sometimes yes it's the support systems are very important yeah well thank you again to the both of you so we have just two final questions that we ask every single person that we interview so the first thing that i want to ask is is there anything that we neglected to ask you or that we should have asked you anything any final remarks uh no, I think you were very thorough. You know, we had to give a, a brief synopsis in an hour. You can't basically paint the whole picture. Yeah. But I can yeah. tell you that when I was diagnosed, there were 12 million persons a year diagnosed with disease. Now it's uh, 300,000 worldwide. And in the U.S., there's uh, an annual of 200,000 I mean, 200 that are newly diagnosed. And there are 13 clinics throughout the, the country because we no longer deal with institutionalization. Now we deal with uh, outpatient clinics. So those things I can I can add. Uh, and I'm glad that the, the numbers have gone down. However, the stigma has not. So I, I always say that uh, stigma is an act of um, rejection and unexplained fear of a person. You know, when you don't know something, you, you, you fear it. So as a result, uh, people have a tendency of fearing cancer's disease as it is known in the Bible. So those are the things I would, uh, would add. I think the thing that Jose asks people sometimes is that now that you have heard his story and his journey, that if you come across other people that 
maybe might be ignorant about the disease, ignorant about where it is today. Even the church sometimes, you know, we've had encounters with the church, with Leviticus and the Bible and all of that to say something, to say, I know an individual that had this experience. And if you want to know more about it, these are the resources you can use because through education, it's the only way that you can enlighten people. People are afraid of, you know, Hansen's disease, of even saying that they're related to someone with Hansen's disease. But Absolutely. And we'll definitely share some of those resources too in our listening show notes so that people can go and educate themselves and hear more and kind of learn more about that. So we're so glad that you guys were able to come on the show and talk more about that, talk more about your journey of social work. It was such a pleasure to meet you both. We have one final question that we do with everybody that comes on, if you'll if you'll do it with us. We do a Likert scale on, on how you're doing today, kind of similar to a check-in a pulse check when you go to the doctor, kind of the very beginning. So how are things going? How are you feeling today? So we've created Likert scales. Each time it's a little different. So today, and this is a question to all of us, we'll, we'll all be answering, on a scale of pulling up to the spookiest shack in the middle of the evening with bats flying around and weird noises to the most beautiful, brightest mansion with birds singing all around it, where do you find yourself today? Uh... I, I I find myself going to to the shack more so than to the mansion and uh, I I flip-flop I don't just stay in one place and and I love going back to the shack because it it allows me to recharge and reconnect in terms of to who I am and who I grew up with my my daughter when she had her investiture uh, being sworn in as judge, she went ahead and, and uh, addressed people differently. And she said, because of you, I am who I am now. So, you know, that's a very important thing. Uh, I, I hadn't heard her say that previously. So I want to be able to reconnect back to, to the shack. And, uh, and the mansion is nice, but uh, the mansion, as I see it, as I envision it, is perfectly clean, quiet, uh, beautiful columns and so forth. And uh, I would be lost in, in that the beautiful mansion, but I would not be lost in the shack. So I flip-flop, you know, getting right to the edge of the mansion and then going back. Well, for me, it's a good day. It's a good day. I like to always kind of see the glass half full and not half empty. And I am active in what's happening today. My sister is in town. We had plans of things we're going to do. This was on the schedule. We're taking care of it. So I, I always look for the next thing that is going to keep me occupied and busy. I, I don't go back unless I'm feeling sick and Jose's been feeling sick, you know, and, and I, I'm doing good today. We learn how to laugh. You know, we say stupid things and all of a sudden we're all laughing. You know, we don't want to go ahead and, and dwell on, on the negatives because we all experiences uh, have experiences with physical and emotional pain. Yeah. In doing your podcast, if, if questions come up later, feel free to relate yes. to us. and they can call him. Or her. <laughs> or both of you. <laughs> How you, know, you are today. So, uh, Tiffany, would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? Uh, you, you go ahead and go first. Okay. So I would say that uh, between the shack and the mansion, I am... Hmm. 
I think that I'm in the courtyard between the two. I am, I can see both in my peripheral vision, but I am not quite in one place over another. I both being in my peripheral vision, I can appreciate them for what they are as different places in life, metaphorically, but that I am, I'm in the courtyard. Mm -hmm. Nice. I like that. I wish I would have thought of that. (laughs) I I took it. (laughs) I'm going to say that I am looking for where my housing is. So I am between homes and looking to figure out where I'm supposed to be and where I'm called to be and where I need to be, whether it's the shack that's in my price range, the mansion that's in my price range. I am, Mm -hmm. I'm home shopping currently is where I'll say I am today. And you know, it, we all have different outlooks and different views of it. And I liked when you said looking at the glass and having to be recharged because it is, it's, you can look at a glass half empty or half full, but really the important thing is, do you know where the water supply is? Do you know so where good. you go to get that? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining for this amazing and unique story. We will be having tons of resources available on our website as graciously provided to us by Jose and Magdalena. Beats by Transplant Social Worker hosts Kristen and Tiffany and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any test, treatment, or procedure mentioned in the show. Always consult your own treatment team or institution for guidance on your individual care and or practice and policies.